The following podcast is produced or sponsored by a community member. The content, views, and opinions expressed are those of the participants and do not reflect those of BMC or the town of Belmont. BMC welcomes your comments. Call us at 617-484-2443 or email us at access at belmontmedia.org. Hello again and welcome to another edition of the TOST Toddcast here on the Belmont Media Podcast Network, found online at belmontmedia.org slash podcasts and also at soundcloud.com by searching Belmont Media. You can listen to the Toddcast at your convenience by downloading the free SoundCloud app available on both iTunes and Google Play stores. I'm Todd Bloniars from the award-winning Time Out for Sports Talk TV show available on BMC channels 28 and 29 and also on demand at belmontmedia.org. Now, as I've stated before on these Toddcasts, I, I find these, uh, this format to be a really great opportunity for me to reconnect with old friends of Time Out for Sports Talk, but they're also a great opportunity to discover young and emerging sports media talent, and I think today's guest fits perfectly into that latter category. Uh, making his Toddcast debut is Evan Lazar, whose Patriots analysis you can read in the Boston Herald and on patspulpit.com, which is a website for Patriots fans that I'm sure if you love the Patriots, you probably already are well aware of that site. Uh, Evan's also a host on the Boston Herald's Naked Bootleg podcast, which, like the Toddcasts, uh, can be found on SoundCloud. The Twitter handle for that is at Naked Boot Pod. And the best way to follow Evan is also on Twitter. Uh, that is uh, at E-Z Lazar, uh, E-Z-L-A-Z-A-R. Evan, I appreciate you joining me on the TOST Toddcast, and I also appreciate, uh, with so much of the recent Patriots conversation consisting of suspect training gurus, dysfunctional team relationships, and how many stitches Tom Brady has in his hand, that you actually want to focus on games and the incredible success that this franchise has sustained since 2001. Well, I appreciate the intro. I should uh, sign you up for a promo of mine. But, uh, yeah, it's it's definitely um, my, my coverage of the team is not, if you want the hot takes about Brady's hand or about Alex Guerrero, uh, there's plenty of writers in town that are really good at that type of stuff. But I'm a football guy. Uh, X's and O's, uh, stats, all that type of stuff is my lane, and I don't try to veer too far away from it. Well, now I uh, took a, a quick peek at your uh, your LinkedIn profile. So for those people who maybe are not familiar with you or your work, just uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, I guess you grew up locally here, so I imagine you must be a, a fan of all the uh, the Boston sports teams. Is that uh, now, now you're covering them? So uh, what's uh, was that something that you thought of when you were younger uh, that you were you know that was kind of a long term goal for yourself? Yeah, absolutely. I, I grew up in uh, in Needham, Massachusetts, so right right around the corner from Gillette Stadium and, and Fenway Park and the Garden and everything. And Belmont. I'm a, <laughs> yeah, in Belmont. So I'm a, I'm a Boston guy, and, uh, you know, I think today in, in today's sports media landscape, you know, a lot of us uh, reporters, whether we want to admit it or not, are fans of the teams that we're covering. And uh, I know that that sometimes for some people has, you know, mixed results. But uh, for me, uh, you know, I, I'm as critical and, uh, you know, as happy to praise them as I am to be critical of them at times. And, you know, you kind of, I think as a fan, you have a unique perspective that other fans want to hear more so than the, you know, the uh, some of the old school reporters that try to take their biases out of it. So that's just kind of where I'm at with that. But, you know, you can't take the kid, uh, you know, the Boston out of the kid, as they say, you know, so not much of a choice, but uh, to keep rooting for my teams. Well, uh, I certainly enjoyed a lot of the coverage you provided last week uh, with regards uh, in the lead up to the AFC Championship game. Uh, you, you know, again, instead of kind of you know focusing on Brady's hand, you were talking more about the X's and O's and what the key matchups were going to be. And uh, you know, uh, you know, the way that game played out, I, I think we, I think you and I probably both expected it was going to be a tight game. Uh, does it surprise you at this point that the fact that the Patriots looked like they were so down and out for, for most of that game that you know, once again Tom Brady was able to, to, uh, you know, to, to pull off his uh, fourth quarter magic and, and lead the team to another comeback playoff victory? Well, as a fan, it certainly surprises you every time, right? Because you're going through the roller coasters of emotions that during these games, like this one, like the Super Bowl last year, or whatever you know, game it might be that the Patriots have played down to the wire. 
seems like there's a bunch of them at this point. Uh, but, you know, it wasn't surprising going into the game that this Jaguars defense kind of had some stuff that was going to frustrate the Patriots and frustrate Tom Brady. And really what it came down to and what it comes down to so often in, in these games is fourth quarter execution. And I thought that really, you know, that was the difference in the game uh, was the fact that the Patriots, you know, have Tom Brady at quarterback and the Jaguars have Blake Bortles at quarterback. And although they were two teams were in different situations, it felt like you could feel the handicap on the Jaguars' offense for most of the game uh, presented by Blake Bortles. You know, the fact that they had to manage him throughout the game. Uh, the fact that late in the fourth quarter they really became predictable on offense on first and second down and were running the football pre- predominantly. These things are all a result of the fact that at the end of the day, whether they want to admit it or not, you know, head coach Doug Marone does not trust the game in Blake Bortles' hands if he can help it. And uh, I think that that's really what this game came down to at the end of the day was that, you know, Bortles, although he did make a few throws on that uh, drive that they almost, you know, ended up scoring on that Stephon Gilmore ended with the great pass breakup, you know, they really didn't make the necessary plays that they had to make to beat a team like the Patriots late in that game. You just can't go three three and outs and a, and a turnover on downs on your final four possessions and expect to beat Tom Brady. It just doesn't happen too often. Yeah, you, you talk about that uh, throw that Bortles made late in the game that Gilmore broke up with a tremendous play. I mean, if he's not there to make that tremendous play, I mean, that was a perfect throw to the receiver who very well could have caught that in stride and run in for the uh, go-ahead touchdown. But instead, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a great defensive play by Gilmore. And really, that whole fourth quarter came down, really the, the second half, the entire second half came down to the Patriots making the key plays whenever they needed them. And when you factor in that Brady was obviously playing with, with some kind of a hindrance, it didn't seem like it affected him that much on his throws. But, you know, there, it was still there. Uh, you, you lost Rob Gronkowski in the first half of that game. You lost Rex Burkhead, which hasn't really been talked about too much. Uh, but uh, he got knocked out of that game early, too. So Brady was kind of limited as to who he could uh, throw the ball to. But, uh, you know, again, he's still, man, you know, and then, of course, he's gone the entire season without his uh, binky Julian Edelman. And yet here he is uh, in the fourth quarter of a game against a, a good Jacksonville defense, and he's still able to, to make the plays down the stretch when needed. Yeah, I think that's the surprising part, too. And I, I talked about it a lot last week about how the Patriots kind of steal from from Jimmy Garoppolo in Week 16 and, and kind of dink and dunk their way down the field on Jacksonville. That's not really what we saw. You know, we ended up seeing Brady really air it out a few times against this Jaguars defense, and I really didn't expect to see that, And uh, you know, especially when the hand injury became a factor. But it really it was a vertical passing attack for the Patriots, and they had more success throwing vertically on the Jaguars defense than just about any team uh you know prior to that this season although pittsburgh obviously had some success in the divisional round too but those were a few plays here and there and some key situations that really stuck out when you look at their efficiency over the entire game it wasn't quite as good as the patriots so you know it's this offense and you you mentioned it with julian edelman uh you know not being in the lineup this offense has really morphed uh in this season into a vertical passing attack due to the personnel that they have you know brandon cook's a vertical receiver chris hogan is mostly a vertical receiver gronk is obviously one of the best vertical tight end threats in the league all these guys are really guys that you know aren't those short quick passes like a julian edelman or an amandola but more of a downfield threat. And the Patriots offense has done a great job this season, I think, of morphing to the personnel around them and really away from Tom Brady's strength. And historically throughout his career, he hasn't really been a downfield passer, you know, except for a few seasons when, you know, like this year, the, the personnel called for it. So, you know, just another reminder that this Patriots offense, whether it was, you know, the divisional round against the Titans, they kind of went more back towards a a traditional Patriots game plan or this week when they try to throw the ball down the field more, they can just be whatever they want to be. They're an enigma uh, to opposing teams, and I think that's what makes it so hard to game plan against them because you really just don't know as a defense and as a defensive coach on the other sideline what they're going to do on any particular day. There's just no way of knowing. It could be a game where they – give the ball to Deion Lewis 40 times. It could be a game where they target Brandon Cooks 15 times. You know, you just don't know. 
So I think that that's uh, that that's really where they have that that card, and they have a quarterback in Tom Brady, who's probably at this point smarter than just about any coach in the league, besides maybe Belichick, who's able to kind of do all these things because of that experience and because of that intelligence. You know, a lot of other quarterbacks would not be able to handle the amount of plays that Brady can handle, or the amount of different schemes that the Patriots can implement in their offense. To have a guy like Brady, you know, at, at the front of it all is uh, is really rare. And, you know, you look at a team, you know, for example, like this Jacksonville Jaguars team, you know, Blake Bortles could not even come close to running an offense like Brady has run it here in New England just because of the sheer fact that his, you know, his brain and his football IQ is not anywhere near as close to Brady's, let alone the physical stuff. Yeah, and I guess that's why uh, Tom Brady uh, becomes the uh, the first forty year old quarterback in the fifty two year history of the Super Bowl to uh, to start uh, for a uh, for a team in this game. I mean that that's and the fact that you know it's also his eighth Super Bowl that he'll be appearing in uh, you know come uh, February fourth in uh, Minneapolis. And when you think about it, I mean Brady's career he, this is his eighteenth season, but you you know you could probably subtract the first year when he was riding the bench as the fourth string quarterback. And you can also subtract 2008 when he only played about two quarters uh, before having his uh, knee torn up by Bernard Pollard of uh, then the Chiefs. So really, that's eight Super Bowl appearances in 16 years. Every other year, Tom Brady gets to the Super Bowl. I mean, last week when we were previewing the, the AFC Championship game, we said three out of every four years, you know, 12 out of 16 years, he's been in the conference championship game. But one out of every two years, every other year, he's showing up in the Super Bowl. It's just unheard of for any quarterback. It just goes to show you how special he is and, and to your other point, Evan, uh, the fact that he's becoming more of a deep passer now that he's turned 40. <laughs> I mean, that's just, I mean, quarterbacks aren't supposed to get better at this age, but uh, Brady just right. continues to defy the odds. Yeah, I really think that, you know, obviously a lot has been made, and especially with in light of all of the ESPN stories and stuff like that, about Alex Guerrero and about Brady's, you know, t- Tom versus time is coming out to, you know, about his physical regimen and how he's able to get his body ready do all these things but really you know when you watch the tape especially from the jacksonville game this is a chess match it, it, you know brady is obviously still an amazing thrower of the football no one's disputing that and he made some amazing throws uh you know against jags but at the same time you know he's also his ability to move guys around and put people in places where they can succeed like an offensive coordinator would but basically on the field you know as the quarterback is really what separates him, I think, at this stage of his career from everybody else. And that part of him can still grow. You know, they, I don't know if he can get physically better than he is right now at his age, but mentally, uh, you know, his brain just continues to morph and it continues to improve every single year. And, uh, and over the last couple of years, you know, really since like the 2014 season, I would say, it's just been an absolute, uh, you know, blessing to watch this guy at work because he is on a different level mentally than everybody else on the field. And it's uh, it's remarkable to watch him be able to basically be a second offensive coordinator when the Patriots already have a really good one in Josh McDaniels. Yeah, and thinking how Brady performed to the second half of that AFC Championship game with, again, you know, he hasn't had Edelman all year. He didn't have Gronkowski. I still think back to that Monday night game in December in Miami when he didn't have either of those guys. The offense looked pitiful. Uh, And here where they, you know, they're down 10 points in the fourth quarter and they absolutely need to score two touchdowns. Brady's able to do it. I think a large reason for that, obviously, Danny Amendola. Kind of speak to to the uh, performance he has. I mean, this whole playoff Dola nickname, it really seems to fit. It's amazing how he seems to to improve his numbers in the postseason. Uh, If I had to make an analogy uh, across Boston sports, he's kind of like... David Ortiz, um, uh, you know, in a Patriots uniform. Yeah, it's it's amazing, and you know, when you look back at that game, you know, obviously the third and eighteen sticks out, the fourth and two in the first quarter sticks out, but he also had some other catches thrown in there, and he also threw a pass for twenty yards that you know was a completion, even though Deion Lewis fumbled it at the end. You know, it's just amazing what he's been able to do. You look back at the last couple of runs, 2016, 2014, uh, Amendola is as big of a part of those runs as Julian Edelman was in some respects. And it's a, it's a testament, really, to the, the, the work that him and Brady have put in over the years. When you watch the two of those guys play, it is like they're the same person. 
out on the field. Uh, you know, on the fourth and two play, you know, Amendola knew exactly where Brady was going to throw that football, and he ran to the exact right spot. Uh, on the third and 18 play, same exact thing. You know, these guys just have a sixth sense about things, and I think that that's a big thing this year in particular that, you know, has really stood out is that there are certain receivers that are new to the team like a Brandon Cooks, like a Philip Dorsett, that just don't have that connection with Brady. And maybe it will develop for a guy like Cooks, and we hope that it will over another offseason and stuff like that. And obviously he had a great game regardless uh, in the AFC Championship game. But you just don't see that that kind of sixth sense that he has with Amendola, where he really uh, can always look for Danny in big spots and know that Amendola is going to be in the right spot, he's going to catch the football, and uh, you know he's going to be reliable. He has something like one drop in the last two or three seasons. You know, the guy just doesn't mess up too often. He doesn't run the wrong route. He doesn't drop the football. You know, it's just a remarkable thing to watch this guy just year in and year out continue to have these big games and these big moments. And the Patriots needed every last one of those yards that he gained uh, in the AFC Championship game, that's for sure. And for all the great plays you mentioned he had in the second half on Sunday against the Jaguars, you didn't, you didn't even mention the, the 20-yard punt return that set up the, the game-winning touchdown catch that he made, which was just a thing yeah. of beauty, the way he just you know got both feet in in the back of the end zone and, and jumped up for a ball that might have been more at a, a comfortable height for, say, Gronkowski, but uh, you know Amadola was able to go up there, pull it down, and then still get both feet in bounds in the back of the end zone. Yeah, I think that that's another big thing a lot of people pointing out to me on that play, that the first read was the Cooks on a similar route to Julian Edelman's route in uh, in 2014 in the Super Bowl. And, uh, and, you know, Brady went away from it, and people were asking me why, and I, I really think that that feel in the red zone and that that security in the red zone that Brady has with guys like Danny and guys like Gronk and guys like Chris Hogan compared to where he's at with Cooks is just different and when you look at that play you know Cooks has Jalen Ramsey in coverage whereas Danny Amendola is running up against the safety and you know you add the trust issue in there as well and you see why Brady you know looked off Cooks and threw it into the back of the end zone to Amendola uh, a great catch. I mean, obviously the toe taps, everything just spectacular, uh, spectacular catch. But I think that that feel that Amendola and guys like him and Hogan have in the end zone down by the goal line uh, to kind of, you know, find the open space and find the way to get his feet in bounds and all that stuff is, uh, is something that's super underrated about those two guys in particular. Yeah, and you know, of all the big plays, uh, you know, from from Sunday's win, uh, you know, I'm so glad I, as I was kind of reading through your tweets. By the way, for the record, and I'm glad this is a podcast because I, I get to loosen my language a little bit. I mean, boy, you 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 absolutely tweet your ass off on your Twitter feed because I'm like I'm trying to go through <laughs> all you. of your tweets, and it's just uh, you, you know, it's it, it's definitely a lot of work. But one of the things you mentioned, which I didn't hear a lot of people mention, you know, it always it's always those little plays that lead up to the to the winning plays. Everyone always remembers like the winning score but but it's what leads up to it and you tweeted how important that fourth quarter play was early in the fourth quarter right after the Deion Lewis fumble when Jacksonville was going the other way with it and on third and eight Bortles completes a seven-yard pass to Alan Hearns, and Devin McCourty just laid into him right from behind. Yeah. You know, where all Hearns really probably could have done was turned around and fallen forward and got in the first down, and McCourty was going to make sure that wasn't going to happen. He just he hit him from behind and pushed him backwards, short of the first down, forcing Jacksonville to punt, and, uh, you know, kind of uh, it set up, uh, you know, the late-game heroics, but uh, certainly a play that it can't go unnoticed. Yeah, and, and, and the interesting part about that play and. You know, as someone like me that like really likes to dive into the film and stuff like that, it's it's awesome listening to Tony Romo because he often says things that I'm thinking, you know, but he says it immediately while he's covering the game as a color analyst. It's pretty mm-hmm. amazing. And uh, you know, one thing that he said about that play right before it happened was that Butler was coming on a similar corner blitz to what he did a couple series earlier in the fourth quarter where he forced a throwaway from Blake Bortles because they didn't pick up the blitz. This time around, they did move the running back into protection in the right side of Bortles, and they picked up the blitz. But the issue was, for Jacksonville at least, and the good thing about the Patriots, was that Devin McCourty, a veteran safety, knows that he has to then switch onto Butler's man to pick up that tackle that he made on third and eight. You know, a lot of safeties, you know, they know that that's their responsibility, but they just don't get there and they don't make that tackle. And McCordy 
being a veteran in that spot, you could tell that the Patriots wanted it to, you know, to work that way. And it was almost like they were forcing the ball there uh, from Bortles because they knew that he would hot read it because he was getting blitzed. So it was basically, you know, a, a telegraphed pass at that point. And they, you know when a player blitzes that most likely, especially when it comes from the secondary, the quarterback's going to look to target the guy that he was supposed to be covering. And obviously, uh, you know, McCourty knew that, the Patriots knew that, and he really sniffed that one right out of there and made a huge tackle on him, uh, you know, to, to get the ball back over to the offense. But those are the little things that a veteran like McCourty does that maybe if, you know, if the Patriots have a rookie in that spot instead, that maybe it doesn't happen the same way. Although, you know, and as talented a safety as McCourty is, uh, still a lot of this comes down to coaching as well. And the Patriots, you know, uh, Belichick and, of course, defensive coordinator Matt Patricia, they they work out all these different scenarios. So, you know, it kind of sets up McCourty to be in the right position for, you know, to be able to make that play. So a lot of the credit goes to the coaching staff as well, I would think. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, obviously the Patriots have one more game left, but, we're expecting that Patricia and McDaniels, although it sounds like McDaniels isn't as set in stone, Patricia's going to the Lions. And, uh, you know, I get this question a lot about, you know, who will be the replacement? Will the Patriots miss him? I really think the Patriots are going to miss Matt Patricia. Uh, he's a guy that his attention to detail is almost as, as good as Belichick's. And he really got his start in New England as a guy that was, you know, just a brilliant, brilliant dude just in all phases of life not just in football and he kind of came into the organization he updated a lot of their old school um you know things and and made everything computerized which you know it sounds crazy but that's actually something that really turned to heads in the organization and he kind of took all of their playbooks and all of their data that they had and he put it all in a computer form and spreadsheets and stuff like that and that was what his first job with the Patriots was as a coaching assistant was to do that task and then that guy went and rose all the way up through the ranks to become defensive coordinator and then eventually a head coach now for Detroit. So I I think that he's a rare breed uh, of uh, IQ, a mix of IQ uh, just in general, not even just football knowledge and also football knowledge. And, you know, it's, uh, I think the Patriots are going to miss him. Now, do I think that they can't win without him or that they're going to fall apart defensively without him? You know, obviously not It's the same scheme, same system. Belichick will obviously still be there. So it's not all going to come off the rails or anything like that. Uh, but I think he's a guy that over the last couple of years has brought in some real stability and also some wrinkles in the defense that are kind of his, his own and kind of unique. You know, Belichick is not a big blitzer, but the front seven especially has been mostly Patricia. I mean, the secondary is kind of Bill's, uh, you know, real, uh, you know, area of expertise. They talked about this a little bit in that piece on MMQB about Nick Saban and Bill Belichick, where it was Saban's front seven schemes, his pass rushes, his blitz pickups, all that type of stuff, and Belichick's coverages that kind of made those early, uh, you know, Giants defenses and the Cleveland Browns defense, and now have kind of found their way to the Patriots and to Alabama. And, uh, you know, it kind of reminds me a little bit of that because Patricia is clearly the guy that is, uh, is coming up with the blitzes and coming up with the pass rush schemes and stuff like that. And you can see how, you know, effective they've been just over the last couple games here. Yeah, you speak of Patricia's intelligence. If I remember correctly, doesn't he, his college degree, he has like an uh, advanced major in Aerospace like a, that's right, that's right. He, he is a rocket scientist, unlike, you know, the, the cliche, you know, everyone likes to use that expression, but he really, he really is, uh, you know, a rocket scientist trying to scope out these defenses. I think one thing that at least if there's consolation here to uh, Patricia leaving, uh, at least the news that Arizona has not hired Brian Flores away, so it looks like there's probably a, a good chance that I guess he would move into the the vacated defensive coordinator position, and a lot of people think he's ready. I mean, he was interviewing for head coaching jobs, so obviously uh, other teams think very highly of Flores as well. Yeah, Flo is definitely ready. He's a veteran coach. Uh, he's a little bit older. Uh, you know, he's been around for a very long time in New England and in football for a very long time. You know, guys get like you said, he's getting interviews to be a head coach. He's obviously, you know, 
ready and experienced enough to be a defensive coordinator if Arizona is thinking about offering him a head coaching job. So I think that he's a really good uh, replacement and a guy that's a linebacker's coach, so he focuses more on the front seven. It makes a whole lot of sense to just promote from within and promote him. But, you know, Patricia, the difference is, is really that Patricia was kind of a young, rising star, whereas Flo has kind of been in, in the NFL for a very long time. So it would be interesting to see, you know, is it, um, you know, possibly could it be Steve Belichick? I mean, I wouldn't rule it out uh, as far as the long-term answer. Uh, not, you know, Flo is going to be the guy next year, I'm sure, and in the coming years as a defensive coordinator replacement. But a lot of people in that building are talking a lot of, uh, you know, high praise about Steve Belichick. So don't be surprised if down the road, you know, he's kind of the young uh, gun that, that's, you know, primed to, to rise up the ranks there. Wow, and I, I still think that uh, I, I, you know, it's first of all, how do you live up to to your father, who's who may end up going down if he's not already considered the greatest uh, NFL coach of all time? He's certainly, you know, in the in the the, the the conversation with only a couple of other names. So it's I I don't know. That's that's tough. Uh, before we get to the Super Bowl here, Evan, I I, I want to uh, you brought up Tony Romo. So uh, I've actually been talking with some other folks about uh, Romo this uh, week. Uh, on the, on the podcast, so I'm going to ask you. Uh, it sounds like you kind of like him, and I will say this: when the season started, I liked him too. He was a breath of fresh air, uh, and in some ways, uh, especially around here, just listening to maybe his cadence and delivery, his voice, he reminds me a lot of Scott Zolak uh, on the radio, uh, you know, doing the Patriots games, and. Yet, you know, by the end of the year, and maybe this is kind of a, a symbolic of uh, Romo's playing career, I, I thought when the playoffs rolled around, his performance started to tail off a bit uh, in the uh, the broadcast booth. And, and, you know, there was a lot of weirdness to his performance, even in the AFC Championship game, a lot of a lot of Zolak-like sound effects that I, I don't really think were in the right place. But just, well, what's your, it sounds to me like you're a big fan of Romo in general, and you, you continue to be even through uh, the, the course of the full season. Yeah, I'll, I'll say this. There's two things to it. One, as a video producer, I can tell you right now that he's being overproduced. He's being overproduced by CBS because early on in the season, he came out of the gate with predicting play calls and doing all the things that a lot of us kind of wanted him to do. And it was a breath of fresh air, like you said. And then over the season, you kind of see him doing less and less and less of that. And I that has producers written all over it which unfortunately sometimes uh you know they, they're out to for the best interest of, of cbs and they're out for the best interest of the broadcast obviously but it might not be in the best interest of tony romo uh the second thing is, is that i'll say is that i think that he brings an element to the booth that no other uh, really player former player any color analyst that i can think of has and that is is he can really put you inside the helmet of the quarterback and, you know, they had guys like Phil Sims and Troy Aikman who you would think would be able to do this, but they just don't have the same success, I think, at, you know, kind of reading the defense pre-snap like the quarterback is on the field and then diagnosing what's exactly happening and then being able to relay that to the audience. And I think that's a big thing that Romo separates himself with. Like I mentioned, you know, he called out that Malcolm Butler blitz. He said the blitz is coming. Let's see if they pick it up. You know, he says a lot of other different things about how just, you know, stuff like on the on the third and 18 play, for example. What makes that play go is that Brady moves his shoulders right before he's about to throw the pass over the middle to Amendola to the left sideline. And when he moves his shoulders over there, you see the entire Jaguars defense shift to the left side, especially middle linebacker Telvin Smith, who thought that Brady was going to throw the ball into the flat on the left-hand side of the field, and then Tom snapped his shoulders back and threw it down the middle to Amendola, and that is what opened up that window to throw the ball in, because if he doesn't move his shoulders, then Telvin Smith is standing right in his way, right in the window to throw the ball to Amendola. Those are the little things that Tony Romo is like able to point out that I just haven't really heard anybody else, you know, be able to do. And that's because, you know, if he played quarterback and some would argue he played quarterback at almost a Hall of Fame level. So, you know, it's uh, it's one of those things where I think that they need to find that middle ground. CBS, 
you know, production team needs to find that middle ground of letting Tony be Tony, but also, you know, not ruining the game. Like, he kind of wasn't ruining the game early on in the season, but a lot of people didn't like the predictions because he was basically calling out the game before it was happening and there was no suspense, you know, uh, and, and that kind of got in the way of that. So, I don't know, I think it's a, it's a tough thing because I, I agree with you as the season has gone on and he's been with the Patriots, you know, covering the Patriots for weeks now, basically, as they kind of have stayed with the number one seed the Nance and, and Tony Romo have. And, you know, I agree with you that if you compare it to him in the first month of the season to now, uh, he's kind of run out of tricks, uh, so to speak. And, and, and you can tell that he's kind of, you know, not 100% in it right now. So it's interesting uh, that, you know, a lot of people have been noticing that, and I've, I've felt the public opinion kind of shift on him as well. Yeah, and you bring up the fact that, you know, he does provide that level of insight that you don't see from other former quarterbacks who are working in the broadcast booth, and there's a lot of them. I mean, you know, there's Sims, yeah. there's Dan Fouts, Troy Aikman, uh, Trent Green, even on some of the lower-level teams, and yet, uh, yeah, you really don't you don't get that uh, out of any of those guys. Well, let's uh, segue here into uh, into the Super Bowl uh here we go again. The Patriots have a chance for the the second time to complete a three Super Bowls in in four years. The parallels between now and 13 years ago were incredible. They won the first, didn't make the Super Bowl the second year, and now have a chance to win back to back again. And of course, they're playing the same team again, the Philadelphia Eagles. First chance they have to to beat a, a team a second time in the Brady Belichick era in the Super Bowl. And uh, like that first uh, Philadelphia encounter back in Super Bowl 39, you had both offensive and defensive coordinators leaving and the possibility exists here although as, as you pointed out uh, McDaniels we're we're not quite sure yet if he's if he's gonna he's waiting on those x-rays for Andrew Luck or all the medical reports to make sure uh, uh, that's gonna be a good job for him so as we look now ahead to, to this game I you know and it, it's gonna be like with Jacksonville this is gonna be a, a tough matchup for the Patriots and uh, in some ways I suppose you know, can they breathe a sigh of relief that Carson Wentz isn't over there playing quarterback uh, and that Nick Foles is? I mean, Foles has played well this postseason, and he, he's performed well as a backup in general. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Obviously, it's it's a break that Carson Wentz, who I would think, and as Patriots fans aren't going to like this, and I don't like it necessarily either, but if he stays healthy for all 16 games, he's probably your league MVP. Uh, he's not going to be in this game, so that's you know that's obviously a huge blow to the Eagles. But really, when you look at their roster from top to bottom, uh, they have one of the two or three best rosters in football right now. I'd say the Eagles, the Patriots, and the Falcons really have three. Uh, you know, maybe the Steelers too. You can add in that conversation. They're kind of the top rosters in all of football, and you've kind of seen that roster as good as it's been. Uh, you know, kind of elevate itself in the last couple of weeks so that Nick Foles can kind of get them where they need to go. And basically what he's turned into is a point a point guard, essentially. You know, he made some really good throws against Minnesota, so I don't want to say that it wasn't, you know, all, uh, you know, that it's all easy for him, obviously. But, you know, at the same time, it's kind of one of those situations where he just needs to not hold the offense back. He just can't be an anchor to what they're doing because Doug Peterson, their, their offensive Corey, well, he's the head coach, but he's basically their offensive coordinator, is so good right now at calling plays and designing plays. I mean, he's on a different level uh, compared to some of the other coaches in that respect. And there's just open receivers. I mean, this Vikings secondary was, you know, touted as one of the best pass defenses in the league, and there was just open receivers all over the field against them and it wasn't just the big plays that you know you can think of like the Alshon Jeffrey touchdown where he was left wide open uh, uncovered and stuff like that there's other plays within the uh, flow of the game that weren't as you know big highlights but where there's just guys there's multiple receivers running open in this and and Foles literally just needs to deliver a catchable pass uh, and, and he was able to do it and that's that's kind of this machine that is the Philadelphia offense can run with a quarterback like Nick Foles as long as he's accurate. And, you know, in that game against Minnesota, he basically looked like Carson Wentz for, you know, most of that game. So in some respects, it's, uh, you know, obviously a blessing that Carson Wentz is going to be in this game. But in other respects, I think that this team, a lot like the Patriots, is a system. Uh, you know, it's a machine. It's not one player necessarily and you look at their skill players and it's the same thing you know there's Alshon there's Nelson Aguilar there's Torrey Smith there's the running backs 
Zach Ertz, obviously, the Pro Bowl tight end. You know, they have a bunch of different players that can create plays. And then on their offensive line, they have a great offensive line. Uh, one of the better offensive lines all year in the league and an extremely athletic offensive line as well. So, you know, it's really a great roster. And then, you know, on the defensive side of the ball, obviously the pass rush is going to be the number one conversation. But the secondary is really good, too. I mean, they have Patrick Robinson, who's playing like a pro bowler. Malcolm Jenkins, obviously, is a pro bowler. Ronald Darby, which I think is a great matchup between him and Brandon Cooks. Uh, you know, he's a guy that that's on the outside that is worth noting, uh, you know, even Rodney McLeod, who's you know an above-average starter, plays the other safety spot and plays more center field, which allows Malcolm Jenkins to kind of move around, kind of like Patrick Chung does for the Patriots. So you know this Eagles team, from top to bottom, is absolutely loaded at all the positions. Yeah, well, and obviously that's why they ended up as a, a number one seed over on the, the NFC side. Uh, among your many tweets today, Evan, one of the things you were talking about, uh, Patriots offense matched up against that Eagles defense. Uh, you talked about a, a player potentially that Brady might try to pick on. Uh, you mentioned uh, Jalen Mills, the uh, the cornerback. Uh, was n- not quite as good as the other uh, Eagles defensive backs this season, and uh, in all likelihood he'll probably be matched up on Chris Hogan. That's at least what you're, you're speculating here. And uh, if, if Hogan seems to be rounding back into form with his health, I mean, this would be the perfect time, I, I think, for, for the Brady-Hogan matchup to, to reconnect maybe in a way in the Super Bowl. We'll see that uh, the way we saw Brady and Amendola this past week. Yeah, if you look at the, there's kind of a theme when you look across uh, some of these big playoff games, whether they've been Super Bowls or championship games or whatever, and I like to call uh, call it where's Waldo because there's always one player in the secondary, the opposing defense, that the Patriots feel is a good matchup no matter who's on him. You know, they just feel like it's a better bet for them to target Jalen Mills, for example, than it is for them to target Ronald Darby on a regular basis. Last year, I, you know, as I pointed out, it was Jalen Collins. Uh, in the Super Bowl on the Falcons in 2014. Uh, I can't remember if it was Jeremy Lane. No, he got hurt early, so it was going to be him. I can't remember who his replacement was, but obviously they weren't going to sh- throw the ball at Richard Sherman a lot. So they, they went away from him, and they basically didn't target Sherman at all in that game, and they targeted everybody else. Jalen Mills is kind of you know that guy that I think could be Waldo in this game, where if you get a favorable matchup against him, whether I think Chris Hogan will probably be the primary guy that he covers with Robinson on Amendola and Darby on Cooks. But let's say in some formation they're able to get Cooks on Jalen Mills or they're able to get Gronkowski somehow on Jalen Mills. You know, those are matchups the Patriots are going to love and they're going to be able to take advantage of. And Jalen Mills is another guy that kind of struggles with with the deep ball. Uh, these both these Eagles corners on the outside, Patrick Robinson's more of a slot guy. Uh, Darby and, and Mills have been really susceptible to double moves in the last month or so. Uh, the Giants, in particular, and I'm going to write a piece tomorrow. Hopefully, it's going to come out about this exact thing. The Giants in uh, in Week 15 had over 500 total yards of offense against them. Eli Manning threw for 434, and a big part of that was targeting Jalen Mills and uh, targeting the outside corners on double moves, and they bit hard on a couple of times, a couple of big plays for the Giants. So I think that's one of those games that the Patriots like to play. It's such a matchup-based team. It's such a matchup-based league at this point. If you have a guy, and, and you know, I, I, I love the stuff that Pro Football Focus does, and when you look at the Pro Football Focus depth chart of this Eagles team, it's like Ronald Darby, starter-level corner, uh, Patrick Robinson, starter-level corner, and you get to Jalen Mills, and their grade on him is about a 77, which is about an average starter. You know, uh, those other two guys are high-level starters. So it, it kind of just lends itself to make you think, you know, if they're going to pick on somebody, it's most likely going to be Jalen Mills or one of these linebackers who they don't have as fast as linebackers as Jacksonville. Jacksonville, Miles Jack, and Tubman Smith are a rare breed. Uh, Nigel Bradham, uh, Michael Kendricks, whoever's out there for the Eagles, isn't quite as fast, I don't think. So maybe you'll see a little bit more uh, of the running backs involved, too. Well, it sounds like, uh, you know, based on uh, last year's Super Bowl and this year's, maybe the fray, uh, the popular cliche here, uh, instead of being where's Waldo, maybe it should be where's Jalen. 
because uh, it looks like <laughs> that might go. be where might yeah. be where might be who Brady tries to exploit there. Let's flip this back, uh, you know, the other side now, uh, really quick. Uh, Philly's offense against the Patriots defense, and uh, certainly, whereas you know Brady and the Patriots, you know, are always looking to target that that weakest defensive back. It, it certainly feels like most teams, uh, you know, going against the Patriots defense are trying to target Malcolm Butler. So uh, that matchup, I guess, would fall on uh, what uh, Torrey Smith would probably be matched up with Butler most of the time and that kind of scares me because Smith's a big tall receiver and every time I see Malcolm Butler matched up against a guy six inches taller than him I, I fear the worst because the quarterbacks throw it high Butler tries his hardest but he you know he just doesn't have the ups to to, to get up there and try to knock the ball away yeah you know Butler is he, he's one of those guys that Patriots fans have obviously kind of uh you know gone off the Malcolm Butler bandwagon this year because he's had some ups and downs. But I think the point that you made about them targeting him a lot is a really good one. Uh, you know, when a guy gets targeted a lot, he's obviously going to give up some some receptions. You know, it's not a it's not a, a, a zero you know sum game. Obviously, the, the position is just naturally uh, designed for you to get burned every once in a while. And I think that that is one thing that Patriots fans get caught up on. Even with Stephon Gilmore, who is obviously back in good graces now, but even before that, you know, they get caught up in these this one play that happened, this one catch that he allowed, this one game that they played poorly, and they don't look at the whole body of work. And that's what you got to do with the cornerback position. Every corner that plays as many snaps as Malcolm Butler does is going to get beat every once in a while. It's just the way that things work, especially in a league where there are so many talented wide receivers. It's just going to happen, you know. And uh, and I think that with Butler. He's had a down year in terms of when quarterbacks have targeted him. He has not produced as well at the catch point. He hasn't broken up as many passes. He hasn't prevented as many receptions. But at the same time, when you watch him play, for the most part, he's, he's you know sticking to his man the same way that he always has. And I think the big thing with him and Gilmore, too, but mostly with Butler, is that he's just a really great system fit for the Patriots. I think this is part of the reason why he didn't get, you know, as big of offers as he was expecting as a restricted free agent. He loves to play trail coverage, which is a dangerous coverage to play because you really need to, uh, you know, lean heavily on your safeties and you have to be disciplined because, you know, you're running a step or two behind the receiver at all times, which really, uh, you know, makes you susceptible to the deep pass, which is where the safeties come into play. you got to trust those safeties. And secondly, you know, you can get, drawing pass interference calls against you a lot of the time because you might get out of control and run into the receiver before the ball gets there. But, you know, Butler is a great, great trail corner, one of the best in the league. And what he's able to do is he's able to close on guys. And he did this uh, early on in the game against Jacksonville. He had that third and eight stop where he broke up the pass on the crosser over the middle where he was like, you know, a half a step or a step behind Marquise Lee at the time. But the ball was just a little bit underthrown by Blake Bortles, and it made Lee slow down just that half a second, which allowed Butler to finish through the play and get back in the play. And as soon as you see Lee make contact with the ball, you see Butler run right through him and break the pass up. And those are the types of plays that Malcolm Butler makes all the time, and it's really, uh, you know, it's a great fit for the Patriots in their cover three and cover two looks that they predominantly do, uh, you know, and some cover one man as well, obviously. But the outside corners are essentially, you know, they basically play cover three, but the outside corners are essentially in man. It's uh, something that Belichick has done for years and years, pattern matching with in-zone coverage. So I think that that's basically what you're seeing with Butler is that this year, yes, his play is down. Uh, I would say that it probably hinders him from going out in free agency and getting some, you know, Stephon Gilmore-like contract. But in terms of his play, you know, costing the Patriots anything in the Super Bowl, I, I wouldn't worry too much about that. Yeah, although uh, just to kind of talking about Butler and his off-season possibilities, I, I just get the feeling somebody is going to maybe not give him Gilmore money, but close to it. I just don't think it's going to be the Patriots, uh, obviously. And, you know, as I was looking at the Eagles' depth chart, I realized I was kind of, I think it was off on the uh, three-receiver set that the Eagles employ, because in all likelihood, Butler's probably going to be matched up more often on Ness and Aguilar as, uh, with Alshon Jeffrey being matched up uh, with Gilmore. 
Yeah, Nelson, it's an interesting question. I've gotten this, too, about, you know, where how the Patriots will match up. Uh, you know, I think that Nelson Aguilar is kind of the guy that they move around a lot. Like he's in the slot a lot. He does a lot of action in the backfield on end arounds. And yeah, he scares me that way. Uh, yeah, from they a, don't have a pass-catching running back, really. Corey Clement can do it. Jay Ajayi can do it. But neither guy is known for that skill set. So basically what they do is they use Nelson Aguilar as an extension of the run game, a lot like the Patriots would use you know, their running backs in swing passes and screen passes and stuff like that. They use Aguilar because he can flat-out fly. So I, I, I think you could see Butler on him because of his speed, but I wouldn't rule out seeing Eric Rowe on him a lot too because that's kind of the role that Eric Rowe has played in this defense is playing more inside this year. And then, of course, there are the two embedded Patriots on the Eagles uh, team, or the former Patriots, uh, who could be some X factors in this game. Legarrett Blunt, who, uh, you know, even though he's probably not been their lead back, uh, Jay Ajay has kind of taken that over since uh, the Eagles acquired him. And then, uh, of course, Chris Long, who uh, really has kind of thrived in, in the Eagles' uh, defensive setup. So talk about uh, what you think, uh, whether Blunt or, and or Long are going to play a, a big factor or could be considered an X factor in the Super Bowl. Yeah, so I think the interesting thing with Blunt and the interesting thing with the Eagles running game in general is over the last two weeks, the Patriots have basically said to Blake Bortles and Marcus Marietta, we don't believe that you can beat us. You know, we don't believe that you're going to be able to make the downfield throws necessary to make us pay for the fact that we're going to load the box against the run. This Eagles team is explosive all over the place, and you kind of can't really, you know, essentially against Jacksonville, the Patriots are playing a goal line defense for the most of the first half. You know, they had one single high safety at the top of the screen, and they had everybody else in the box. Uh, and, and, you know, it was a defense that worked because they really didn't trust that Blake Bortles could make the throws. You know, it all depends on what Nick Foles we get. Do we get Nick Foles from this NFC Championship game, or do we get the Nick Foles that played in Week 17 and Week 16? You know, I think that it does bode well for the Patriots that he played as well as he did in the championship game because I don't think that he's the type of player that can replicate that type of performance. Now, maybe he'll prove me wrong, uh, but I think that that's a big thing with LeGarrette Blunt's, you know, role or, or impact in this game is can the passing game force the Patriots to go a little bit lighter in their front seven and, and take some of those run stoppers off the field, guys like a Ricky Jean Francois or a London Roberts or, you know, these bigger guys that can really stop the run, you know, if they're passing the ball successfully, they're going to have to take those guys off the field. So that'll be an interesting element to watch. And, I, and Chris Long is really uh, part of another system in this Eagles team where they just have bodies up front that can rush the passer. They're easily the deepest team on the defensive line in the National Football League, and it's not even close. So that's a big thing that I think that is different from this game than maybe the Jacksonville game or like the Atlanta game in last year's Super Bowl or even Seattle in 2014, was that you can't just tire these guys out. A lot of what happens with these Patriots uh, games is that these pass rushes in the fourth quarter have to drop back and rush Tom Brady so many times throughout the course of the game and expend so much energy doing so that by the fourth quarter they're gassed. That's exactly what happened in both Jacksonville and with Atlanta in last year's Super Bowl. This Eagles team has the bodies to rotate, and I think that Chris Long, whether he has a sack or a big play, I don't know, but he's definitely going to be a part of that rotation, and, and it's kind of one of those situations where you kind of have to know which player is li- you're lining up across from because all these Eagles pass rushers do things differently and do other things well differently. You know, a guy like Brandon Graham, for example, is more of just a steady tactician at the on the defensive end spot, whereas Chris Long is just a freak athlete. Or a guy like Derek Barnett, the rookie who I really like that they, they picked in the first round last year, he is an absolute terror on the edge you know he's going to get around the edge in, in, in two seconds two and a half seconds so you have to take those things into account who's lining up across from you what kind of skill set that player has and these eagles pass rushers are just there are a bunch of them and they could really sub in anybody at any time and, and keep all those guys fresh so you know maybe they don't run out of gas in the fourth quarter the same way like jacksonville did who knows though so, i mean you, know, you never know but that's that's just kind of one thing that i think is is different about this eagles team than jacksonville and atlanta in particular
Well, that's a really interesting observation, Evan. Uh, let's wrap up then. I, I just want to, you know, let's talk about uh, some of the health statuses. I, you know, I, I know I'm kind of putting you on the spot here, but but looking ahead to the Super Bowl, I think four of the most banged up Patriots that maybe we have some concern about uh, health wise, and the, the first two being of the concussion variety, Rob Gronkowski and uh, Dietrich Wise, who I know obviously uh, aren't practicing this week, but also uh, you know some other folks. I I, I would be uh, curious about their health. Uh, would be uh, Lee Adrian Waddle, uh, you know, especially because you're mentioning with all the depth uh, Philadelphia has on the on the defensive line, uh, whether he's going to be able to uh, to play in the Super Bowl, and then even Rex Burkhead, who again quietly left the AFC Championship game, and no one really said anything. I mean, the most noteworthy thing about Burkhead last week was that he was responsible for for Brady's uh, appropriately twelve stitches on TB12. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's. Uh... The injury report, obviously, uh, you know, at this this point is up in the air. But, uh, you know, with Gronkowski, I keep telling people that everybody's different when it comes to concussions. You know, uh, Anderson Sandejo, the, the Viking safety, had a concussion in the divisional round, and he played six days later. You know, but then you look at Stephon Gilmore earlier this year, and he missed, you know, what, a month with a concussion? So, you know, you just, you just don't know. It could be he could easily be back or he could be not back. And, you know, I think one of the big things is, is that now with Gronk is that he's in concussion protocol, and the team has acknowledged the fact that he has the concussion, which means that they have to basically follow the letter of the law. I mean, I know a lot of people want to say, well, it's the Super Bowl. If he's 75%, he's going to play. I don't know if that's necessarily true with the way that, you know, the concussion protocol works and the way that the system now works. You know, basically they're going to have to, you know, not think that they would do this, but if Gronk isn't 100% cleared from this concussion, then they would be directly violating the the protocol by letting him play. And, my God, if that happens and it gets out that they let Gronkowski play with a concussion, I mean, we've seen what the league did when they deflated footballs, allegedly. You know, if they violate the concussion protocol in this climate right now with concussions, I mean, it could get ugly in terms of, uh, you know, penalty. So I I don't know if if that's really necessarily a possibility. Uh, The Dietrich Wise one is weird because, you know, it didn't really get talked about on Sunday, and then all of a sudden he pops up with the concussion. So that's interesting to monitor. One thing, you know, that, that really speaks to Wise's availability is that the, the Vikings were not able to pressure Nick Foles uh, as much as we thought they would be able to. And that was a big part of that game was a lot of clean pockets for Foles. And then even when they did pressure him, he was great at throwing under pressure too. So, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, if Wise is out of the game, that's just one less pass rusher. And uh, really, uh, with Waddle, you know, it's it's great how much depth the Patriots have had at tackle this year. I think it's something that in the spring and summer, in August, when we were all doing our 53-man roster projections and draft needs and all that good stuff, you know, all of us were under the impression that tackle was this, like, glaring weakness, and Nate Solder was, was on his last year of his contract, and his play was starting to decline. Now, all of a sudden, Solder's a rocket left tackle, and it doesn't really matter who they put in that right tackle, because it seems like Cam Fleming or Waddle or, or, or Cannon, when before he got put on IR, we're all solid and are all playing well in both phases. So it's interesting to see that happen. And obviously, Skarnecchia, Dante Skarnecchia is a huge part of that, uh, I'm sure. But, you know, really a testament to these depth players on the Patriots that, you know, guys like Waddle and Cam Fleming have really stepped into that right tackle spot and basically uh, been seamless transition uh, from that spot and and, and really uh, haven't been the, the liabilities that a lot of us expected that they would be, especially a guy like Fleming, who was basically uh, people wanted him, you know, sent to the curb after that 2015 AFC championship game for one block that he missed. And, and now all of a sudden he's uh, been a solid starter for the team over the, the stretch run here. Which is amazing because, frankly, I think compared to last year, I, I haven't found Fleming to be quite as good. At least, again, this is just sort of anecdotal based on what I'm seeing. I, I don't feel like he's been as good this year. And, you know, the scary part is if Waddle can't uh, answer the bell for the Super Bowl, I mean, you're talking about probably Cole Croston being activated because, uh, you know, they're, they're down to very minimal depth. And like you said, Philadelphia's defensive line can kind of keep coming at you in waves. So, you know, if, if the if, you know, if God forbid Fleming went down, I don't know what they would do at right tackle. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm probably going to get into a lot of the other matchups because 
the matchup of the game is, is the Eagles pass rush versus the Patriots offensive line and Tom Brady. You know, that that's the name of the game. The Eagles have the formula. They have a capability of re- getting to Brady with four guys. They have about seven or eight guys that they can rotate in that can do that. They can almost do it in, like, line shifts like a, like a hockey team. So, you know, it, it's one of those things where that's going to be the story of the game. It was the story of Jacksonville game. The offensive line held up well enough for Brady to make plays downfield, and they won the game. And, uh, you know, that's what it will come down to again, I'm sure, as well as some stuff on the defensive side of the ball. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think that this Patriots offensive line continues to get, uh, you know, underrated almost because there's this lingering feeling of, like, that game, like a 2015 Broncos game or this two Super Bowl losses is always lingering in the background that, you know, this offensive line isn't really as good as we think. It does, isn't really as good uh, on paper as it tends to be on tape. A big part of that is coaching. Uh, you know, so uh, it, it's it's one of those things where when you look at the individual players on the line, you circle Cam Fleming, you circle Joe Tooney in pass protection, you know, those are weak spots, you would think, and something that other teams like the Falcons last year were able to just absolutely dominate the interior offensive line of the Patriots. But at the same time, it seems like, you know, week in and week out, they deliver at least a good enough performance to give the Pats a chance to win. Yeah, really quick on, on Burkhead. Uh, do we know the, the specifics of the injury he suffered on Sunday? Because, like you were saying with Gronkowski and the concussion protocol, if he can't go for the Super Bowl, uh, Burkhead suddenly becomes kind of a, a big piece of the offense, uh, you know, with uh, Brady not really probably going to throw to the tight end if Gronk's not there. Yeah, I, I, Burkhead took a huge hit uh, on a pass over the middle that he dropped, actually, and he and he didn't come back after that. So I don't know if, exactly what the injury is. Uh, just theorizing here, he did break some ribs earlier in the season, uh, and then he took a massive hit uh, right to the right to the uh, chest in this game. So maybe that that might be it. Uh, but I, I do not know exactly, uh, you know, what's going on with Rex. But it's interesting because, you know, uh, in that Tennessee game especially, we really saw them be able to use all of these running backs, you know, James White, Lewis, and and Burkhead, and it was like they could give them the the ball at any situation at any time, and and it really took the Titans, uh, not by surprise necessarily, but just there's not a lot of ways to stop it. Uh, so it, it would be big to have Burkhead back. If they have the entire stable of uh, skill players for Brady, including Gronk, including Burkhead, I mean, this offense is uh, is, is in prime uh, territory, you know, to win them another Super Bowl here. All right. The very last thing I'm going to ask you, Evan, a score sure. for the Super Bowl. What, what do you think? Oh, boy. Uh, you know, I'm almost terrible at predicting scores. I, I do think the Patriots win. Uh, maybe that's a little bit of homerism there. Uh, but I definitely think that, you know, you look at the course of the history of these Patriots Super Bowls, uh, one thing is in common is that all of them are, you know, nail-biters. Uh, none of them have, have ever been blowouts. That Eagles Super Bowl, obviously, is the closest thing that they got to, but it was still you know, decided by a field goal. So it, they've never really blown anybody out. So I don't think that they're going to blow the Eagles out. I do think that it will be somewhat high-scoring just by, I, by the time the game ends. You know, you might be in, in, in the low 30s for one of the teams, that, you know, whichever team wins. Uh, I'll, I'll go 31-28 Patriots, and uh, you know what? I think Koskowski might uh, deliver an Adam Vinatieri moment here. Wow, okay. Well, you know, interestingly enough, or oddly enough, uh, the largest margin of victory that the Patriots have had, uh, on, you know, in any of the uh, the Brady-Belichick Super Bowls was last year in a game that went to overtime, right. <laughs> of all things. You... That's what I'm saying. A lot of people are, have asked me that, you know, and, and I just say, you know, these games are always close, no matter whether we want them to be, no matter what the talent discrepancy is uh, between the Patriots and the other team, it doesn't really seem to matter. They They, they always seem to come down to the wire. Well, you know, yeah, you're right, Evan. And, and you know what? This has been a lot of fun, and I really appreciate you uh, staying a little longer than you had originally promised. And, uh, but, you know, it's, it's great talking Patriots with you because you know your stuff. Thanks. I appreciate that, and I, I really appreciate uh, you inviting me on. Yeah, and uh, again, you can follow uh, Evan uh, Lazar on uh, Twitter. It's at uh, EZLazar, E-Z-L-A-Z-A-R. Is Z your middle initial, by the way, Evan? 
It is. It's Zachary. It's, well, it's okay. a good old middle name. Oh, wow. There you go. Wow. Okay. That's pretty good. All right. Well, that's where you can follow him. And of course, he provides links to all, you know, you got links going to all the different places and outlets that you're you're writing and contributing to. So uh, so definitely uh, check him out here on the days leading up to Super Bowl 52. Some good stuff. Evan, I hope we can do this again sometime. Yeah, me too. Me too. I had a, I had a blast. So we'll do it again uh, after the Super Bowl. All right. Sounds great. Uh, again, uh, don't forget to uh, follow us here on uh, social media by searching Timeout for Sports Talk on Facebook and on Twitter. That's at TOSTBMC uh, to get links to the latest TOST podcasts as soon as they are available. Also, want to remind you, of course, uh, we're recording this show on January 24th, just seven days from our big live 90 minute Super Bowl extravaganza over on the TV side, our uh, live Timeout for Sports Talk TV show. Uh, again, it'll be Wednesday, January 1st or 31st from 8 to 9.30. Uh, it's our special 90-minute show. We usually only do 60, but of course, whenever the Patriots are playing in the Super Bowl, uh, we like to uh, expand the show because we have a few uh, different wrinkles we like to throw in. And it's amazing now. This is going to be the ninth time because this is, uh, amazingly enough, our 25th the Super Bowl preview. And uh, we uh, continue to love doing it to Howie McClellan and myself. And, uh, again, surprise guests along the way. So uh, it should be a lot of fun. Hope you can uh, join us on the 31st. Once again, I want to thank uh, Evan Lazar for uh, joining us from uh, the Boston Herald, Pat's Pulpit, and all other uh, sports outlets. Again, you can follow him on Twitter at Easy Lazar. Until next time, this is Todd Bloniars. We want to thank you for checking out the TOST Toddcast right here on the Belmont Media Podcast Network.